From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Today on The Surgery Set, we welcome Dr. Melissa Hogue. She's an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Hogue received her MD from Northwestern University and her MS from the University of Pittsburgh Institute of Clinical Research. She did her general surgery residency at McGaw Medical Center at Northwestern and her surgical oncology fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh as well. Dr. Hogue specializes in gastrointestinal surgical oncology with a focus on minimally invasive treatment of stomach, pancreas, biliary, and colorectal disease. But what she's probably best known for is the way that she uses cutting edge robotic technology and more importantly, teaches others to do so too. Today we talked to her about how we train and assess surgeons as part of her grand rounds. And with that, we welcome Dr. Melissa Hogue to the surgery set. So Dr. Hogue, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for a great grand rounds. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about how you became one of the world's great robotic surgeons? (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, I was a victim of circumstance for the most part. Um, I think, you know, I came from Northwestern, which had a long line of uh, medical education um, sort of focus. And then when I came to Pittsburgh, they were pioneering robotic HPV uh, surgery. And I was doing my surgical oncology fellowship there. And um, at the time, I was getting my master's in clinical research uh, and always had this interest in medical education. So I took a couple of medical education courses and sort of that. that, As a fellow? As a fellow. Yeah. Uh, So that coupled with uh, my preliminary experience in the OR doing robotic surgery and feeling very inept at what I was doing, um, it sort of motivated me to try and think of um, a curriculum that may help improve that. And I was able to have the mentorship from um, my professors in the medical education department to teach this. And I think that I saw it personally be effective in my own um, surgical skill and was able to have the opportunity to stay on uh, staff at Pittsburgh and cultivate this uh, to the level it is today. So what was the first time you, you saw a robot like, or in, engaged in robotic surgery? You know, we did not have really any experience as a resident. So a few months into my fellowship was the first time I really saw a procedure. And I, at that point, they were early in their experience, maybe case 40 or 50. And um, these two attendings were doing most of them together. And I would either assist at bedside or watch. Um, and then the first thing I got to do is just the gallbladder during the first case. And I remember thinking, you know, this is crazy. <laughs> That's my memory of robotics. I mean, I, it was sort of the same thing in Seattle where I trained. Like, we would help laparoscopically. And then, you know, at some point, like, you were brought to the console and it just seemed like this alien world. Um, and I, I did not have a huge amount of simulation experience going into it. I mean, and we played around with it a little bit um, in the in the room, but we didn't have any sort of formal curriculum. And, I, and it was sort of the same thing. It was like, why would anybody do this? This seems like making everything 10 times harder. Mm-hmm. But you have figured out a way to sort of progress people through a, a curriculum that, that maybe gets them to a, a point where they can be facile relatively quickly. Yeah, and I think it, um, it's important to know it, it, it didn't all develop at once. It was sort of a work in progress that took me, you know, two years or maybe a little bit more to have sort of the five-step curriculum that I have today. And I think, you know, it started with simulation because that's all I knew that was around there. And then I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could 
do more than that. And, and actually, when I was developing this pancreas anastomosis with the, the company Lifelike Biotissue, I was primarily thinking of doing this open just because we didn't have a robotic trainer. And I thought, well, this is some way to teach simulation for robotics. Let's figure out a way to teach um, open, you know, uh, for open. And sort of, I, I started doing it that way. And then I thought, well, what if we just use the robot in the OR? You know, can we do that? And then I sort of played around with it myself. And then, you know, from there, I said, well, what if we had the fellows try this, you know, as mm -hmm. well? And let's have them do open and robotic and try and compare sort of their scores in the two different environments. And that's how sort of the whole biotissue curriculum began. And, and I, I hadn't been as successful that first year getting fellows to do the whole robot from the console by just doing the simulation. I had been able to do that, but I thought, okay, well, it's going to take something deeper and something where they're um, having ongoing training. I think that for a novice, you do something for a month or two, and then you sit and do nothing for several months. Your right. skills are going to perish. Um, but if you have some sort of exposure on a weekly basis, then that's going to be the key. And I think for simulation and for you know, 30-year-old surgeons, you're not going to be that excited to do simulator drills, you know, every week. Uh, and this offered an alternative, and, and I, I think it's been successful because people have enjoyed doing it. And what you're, what you're doing is you're putting people into these simulation settings where they're working with lifelike tissues, mm -hmm. um, and then you're grading them, right? It's not just that they're going and practicing, it's that they're going and practicing and then having their practice evaluated and improved on right. by people who know what they're talking about. Right, yeah. exactly. And I think, you know, they're they're in a box trainer, so they're using a real-world setting. They're sitting at the actual robot, so they're getting more facile um, in the tools and in the instrument as well. And, you know, it wasn't right off the bat that I had the grading system in place. You know, first, you know, I thought, well, is this going to be feasible? And I thought, do people need a partner? So I had two of them signing them up at once and handing them instruments. And then I was able to design it to be self-sufficient. And once it was self-sufficient, and then I thought, okay, well, can I teach someone how to edit this and break it down? And then once I had that, I thought, well, we have these international people here and they want to do the curriculum. What if I had them to do the curriculum and then grade this? So, you know, that whole process, um, you know, developed over time as well. And I think that that's really the component to success. It's not only doing the drills, it's getting directed feedback um, and also inspiring that competitive spirit to be better. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if you think about how you design something for surgeons, right, mm -hmm. making them compete against one another seems to be a <laughs> pretty effective way to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And me and my partners are no exception. We're always like, was that who did the fastest case? Who did the, you know, biggest tumor? Who did the whatever? We're, we're very competitive amongst ourselves. So our fellows are very competitive amongst each other as well. And you're doing an enormous volume. And that's one of the things that really struck me too about your talk is A, like the enormous volume that you folks have done, but also the number that you really need to do to be capable. Yeah. And then the fact that maybe not so many people are are getting those volumes. Right, and I think this is the biggest problem. I mean, I'm fortunate we do a, a 220 pancreas resections a year at Pittsburgh, 160 Whipples. Um, so I think that volume um, is probably of the top five in the country, and I think um, after the five, the next five is quite lower, and then the next 10 is quite lower. I think, you know, probably a good volume for most centers is 50 a year. So I think that we're only able to succeed in this environment of high volume um, in the sense that, you know, five fellows a year, 160 cases a year, et cetera. I think that if I was trying to meet the same endpoint with half the cases, half the fellows, you know, it would take me two or three times as long to prove the same things. And you talk about getting 80 cases as an institution to sort of get things up and running, but then you think 
your proficiency was faster and your fellow's proficiency will be faster, faster. still. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of like, I mean, I'm both proud and competitively jealous uh, of the fact that fellows uh, graduate um, being better than I was when I graduated. And I kind of think, oh, well, that it's good. It's a good thing. <laughs> but then you're like, God, they're so much better than I used to be. But I, I do think that actually fellows now will graduate at the level of what I was, you know, maybe my first six to you know, 12 months in practice. And mm -hmm. that's all because they've been putting in an, a year's worth of effort before they get to me. And, and, and unfortunately, the lead time bias is something I can't avoid meaning so someone is on our service in July versus someone who's on our service in January that mm -hmm. January person has six extra months to get better you know so yeah. um so all that stuff helps and, and actually you know our fellows are good kids in the sense that it's very frequently that if one of them are, are not in the operating room and they're going to be on service they'll come if they if they can and watch our case so that they kind of get a, a sense of how things are before they're on service, which I, you know, which I think is a very proactive thing to do. And also, um, they'll come to our tumor board um, when they're on research just to even see the cases presented, uh, just because they know we are such a high volume center and, you know, they're going to be out in practice in a year, you know, and they want to get as much experience diminishing their learning curve by um, capitalizing on the volume of other fellows at the same time. Yeah. And you, you, you talk about how these fellows, you know, your fellows are going out and they're, they're starting programs. This training is mm -hmm. disseminating. But how do you get past the, the fact that, you know, there, there are places that are doing hundreds of these a year mm -hmm. and they are inevitably going to be better than, than the majority of places mm -hmm. that are doing, I mean, you, you had a pretty dramatic slide that shows a pretty high percentage of places are doing one of these a year. I think that, I think there has to be a minimum volume. And, and I don't necessarily agree with the papers, um, and how they did their analysis, but I agree with the final message is that you need to have a minimum volume mm. threshold. I think 20 is a reasonable number. Um, and there's, I guess you could say that there's data behind how they chose 22 so that now we can prove that that's the right number. Uh, but I do think that if you're not doing 20 cases, you shouldn't be doing this, you know, um, because the selection as you begin, you know, maybe 25% of your patients, if you look at ours, maybe 25% of the people you're seeing are eligible. Then maybe, you know, uh, over time, 50% will be eligible. But so if you look at that, you're only doing five to 10 a year, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and even though your volume's 20. But I do think that the skills are transferable. Like if people are doing robotic distals and robotic livers and robotic stomach, and, you know, you don't necessarily have to be doing only Whipples. And I think that it's actually a mistake to be a program where you do lap distals, lap gastric, lap liver, and then robot distal. I think that in order to really succeed and master the platform, you have to use it in all its iterations. So I think that if you're doing, you know, five to 10 whipples a year, but then five distals, 10 livers, 10 stomachs, you know, then you are a higher volume surgeon using this technique um, and, that, and those skills will translate. Right. It's more the the familiarity with the platform than yeah. with the specific operation. Right. All, you know, most of the things we do are applicable in many different parts of the abdomen. Right, exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So what, what's the next phase? I mean, you talk a little bit about, in your talk about credentialing and, and sort of formalizing this process of training. Um, What's, what's coming down the road? Well, I think, you know, one of the problems that we have is a lot of the credentialing has been set forward by industry where they say, hey, come to our course. Hey, we'll pay for proctors for your first three cases and then go do it. And mm -hmm. that's what a lot of 
institutions have adopted because that's what the industry has told them is the paradigm. And I think our point is that's the wrong message and that, you know, this is not something where you could go do a pig lab somewhere and then have a couple people, uh, you know, a gynecologist come up and watch you do this or a urologist watch you do that and then all of a sudden doing these big cases. And I, and I think that, uh, that we're trying to push for more rigorous credentialing criteria um, to keep these people that are doing one a year and killing patients that someone needs to oversee that. And our goal is not to make everyone do robotic pancreas surgery. Far from it. Our goal is for the right centers, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of push the envelope. And I, I and we do see, you know, decreased length of stay, decreased pain, you know, increased to work and decreased, um, you know, cost. And so I do think that there are advantages to having um, this platform. Um, but just because that's the case doesn't mean it's something that everyone should do. Right. Absolutely. Um, and presumably over time, you know, yeah. as as robotic surgery becomes more common. We start seeing it more in the residency setting, right? It may get easier as time goes on or not. Do you think, do you think there's sort of a limit to how fast a little bit? Yeah, I think it's here to stay. I remember being a resident hearing where I was doing my fellowship, they were doing this. I thought that was crazy, you know, and I thought that's a fad, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. And even when I um, first was a fellow, I didn't necessarily think it was going to stay. And even like my first year in practice, it wasn't that patients were necessarily saying, hey, are you doing this minimally invasive? Or I don't think it was driven by patients. But I would say that in my five years in practice, I think the needle's turning, that now I think that more people are adopting, and I think there's more pressure you know, to have minimally invasive programs. I think the, uh, the patients are now asking, most of my patients now ask, or most patients have heard already, and they say, am I a candidate? I heard you do this this way. And even I, I have an appointment at UPMC and at the VA, and now VA patients are asking, mm. which is even crazier, because like, you know, vets are usually like, sure, doc. You know? Yeah. Right. Uh, but patients are asking there, and uh, and it's interesting. And you know, at the VA, I'm a low volume. We I do maybe eight, you know, to ten Whipples a year at the VA, and our residents don't have training, and I don't have any partners. So I I do robot gastric, robot distal, you know, but I don't do robot Whipples up there. And it's not that I can't do it, but I just don't think the infrastructure makes it safe. And I think you have to think about not only your skill and not only your volume, but the environment that you're in and whether it can foster that. Because you know, patients with high morbidity can have, you know, issues and, you know, you have to be able to rescue them. And uh, and these types of procedures can have set up issues and the nurses have to be able to adequately get you stuff if you need it, you know, on a, on a moment's notice. So I think that, um, you know, I think that there are challenges out there, but I think that, you know, finally another company was just approved uh, for a robot mm. uh, and the, all their trials have been in uh, Europe, uh, mostly in gynecology and colorectal. So the FDA approved them and now the FDA has learned a lot from Intuitive rolling out that these um, new robot devices have to have a, a built-in simulator uh, or built-in training program before uh, for safety concerns. So the so the, the rigor has gone up there. And so I, I definitely think that this is not going to go away, and I think it's just going to become more prevalent, and I think once there's more companies on the market, it'll make, hopefully, the cost come down, and it'll push Intuitive to be a little bit more, you know, forthcoming with training and with dollars for these types of training programs. Yeah. And I think that people are going to be learning it in their residency, you know, and in their fellowships, so they're not going to have to you know, come do these CME courses by adopting it later on in life. So I think the pendulum has switched, switched in five years, but I think it's only going to 
grow in this time period because I, truthfully, the robot's an important performance enhancer. I mean, I could do things robotically I can't do open. I mean, I'm not ambidextrous, so I mean, I could suture just as facile on a vascular reconstruction with my left hand. Mm. I could suture better robotically than I can open. I couldn't use my left hand to do an anastomosis. Um, and just some of the angles you get in the magnification, I think it, it sort of helps your uh, ability. So I think that only will translate to being able to do things a little bit better down the road. And I think how the robot is will be different. I think pretty soon there's going to be boons that are going to come down and you're going to be able to attach a robot, you know, but I don't yeah, know when that right. is. Right, that's sort of like the, the finicky early adopter yeah. nature of it is, yeah. is sort of getting past this and now we're sort of moving into when this is mainstream right. and there's going to be competition and there's going to be different ways to do it and people are going to evolve right. to where... You know, yeah, because the it, new it one becomes that, a standard way of, of operating. Right, because the new robot that's came out isn't just one robot that comes in with four arms. It's four different arms that are separate. You know, so mm. that you could see that how that that can then translate to well, then what if they're already in the OR? Then what if they're here? You know what I mean? What if you're doing the case lap but then want to bring down a robot arm? Like it, it, it opens all these new inguinal And I never thought I'd see a day where inguinal hernia was being done robotically, but now it's like an explosion. And I don't think. Uh, you know, whether it's right or wrong, it's actually happening. So I think the most important thing is controlling um, the costs and controlling the um, outcomes. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, um, for a really stimulating talk about not just, you know, the, how you do a, a Whipple operation with, with a robot, but how you innovate a program and iterate a program uh, to teach people about surgery. Really fascinating, fascinating stuff. Oh, well, thank you. Great. Thank you for coming. No problem. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the surgery set or have suggestions on how we can make our program better, please provide us with your feedback. You can rate our podcast and leave your comments in iTunes, Podbean, or Stitcher. Or you can send us an email at podcast at surgery.wisc.edu. Next time on the surgery set, I'll be speaking with Dr. Andrew Wright from the University of Washington. He was actually one of my attendings when I was a resident there, and he was a resident here in Madison. He specializes in complex hernia repairs, and he's going to tell us about a very unique umbilical hernia he operated on at the Woodland Zoo. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Annie Erickson. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at J.E. Kohler, and the department is at Wisc Surgery. And if you happen to work at a hospital in Wisconsin, we encourage you to check out a new project from us here at UW-Madison, the Wisconsin Surgical Collaborative. Find out more at scwisconsin.org. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, we hope you check back soon.